Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenvey. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Hello, welcome back to GEMCAST. I have a fantastic guest here with me today, Sergei Motov, whom you may know from many other podcasts. He is an expert on pain management. Sergey works at Maimonides Medical Center and does research there as well as speaking and education. And his latest research, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about, is nebulized ketamine for pain. Sergey, welcome back to GEMCAST. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. As always, honored and privileged to be here today. Thanks. Well, we are going to talk about pain management in older patients. And I know we had you on before, Sergey, to talk about specifically ketamine for pain relief in older patients. But now we can talk more broadly about how do we think about and approach and manage acute pain in older patients. And one of the reasons that this is important and that this is a concern is that there's some evidence, some papers that have said we undertreat pain in older patients. And so I'd love to hear your take on, is that true? Are we undertreating them? And if so, what's going on there? Well, I tend to agree with all these papers and especially with the notion that you just brought it up that unfortunately at present time, you would imagine 21st century with all the technology and tools and analgesic armamentarium, we tend to undertreat geriatric pain management. And there's a multitude of reasons and probably we can spend the rest of the day talking about this. But if I sum this up, I'm just gonna do brief points so we can elaborate as you wish. It starts with it almost simple and very trivial, the assessment of pain. You know, we're not gonna talk about overcrowding, everybody spread out thin, and we don't tend to spend much time with geriatric patients, especially imagine if they're cognitively impaired. So commonly acceptable pain assessing tools, the scales, the numbers, the faces, what have you, they're essentially relevant. It's nearly impossible to elucidate a number on a scale of zero to 10 or visual analog scale from elderly patient who's in pain and who's slightly cognitively compromised. And currently available scale specifically geared for those cognitive patients, I bet they're not widely used in the ED. They may not be as much of a time consuming, but they're just not routinely used, right? Second, which is a big deal is opiophobia, but it's a different opiophobia. One, you know, opioid epidemic, regulatory constraints, CDC, hospital, state requirements, reduce, replace, abandon, ban, whatever. Opioids, but when it comes to geriatrics, we've traditionally been very stingy when it comes to opioids. If we do dosing, it's too low. If we don't titrate properly, which was wrong medication. We don't honor pharmacokinetic, and this goes on and on and on. Another one is very big on my list is a... Uh, and I'm probably going to stop afterwards, lack of pharmacologic knowledge. You know, there's a data came out, which I always quote, Dr. O'Connor and colleagues published a paper stating that 47% of physical clinicians lack pharmacological validity when they order medication. Imagine 50% of our fellow colleagues don't understand why they're ordering one medication to another. And imagine it comes to opioids or sedative hypnotics. The list goes on and on and on. So there are issues, lots of it. That's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that O'Connor paper? So almost half of ED physicians lack pharmacologic validity in prescribing opioids. What does that mean? Or lack it of means, comfort? Right. I'm sorry. It means that traditional teaching, I was taught, I was told to use this medication and that's what I've been doing. And mostly paper mm -hmm. evolved around the fact that we tend to overprescribe or overdose hydromorphone and underprescribe morphine. And I usually use this. We're all hydromorphonophilic and we're so morphine. <laughs> and we're not going to, obviously, you know, I hope by now everybody understands the conversion that we tend to really overprescribe hydromorphone by 50%. There's a phenomenon of single digit versus double digit. Everybody paranoid about giving 10 milligrams of morphine. Don't get me wrong. It's not a right dose for geriatric patients, <laughs> but at the same time, everybody's comfortable giving two milligrams of morphine as a single IV. Portion. As a, it's all so, of, yeah. Right. So yeah, that's, that's what the paper primarily evolved around that we overprescribe hydromorphone. And 50% of those the physicians who prescribe hydromorphone don't quite understand equi-analgesic conversion and the ratios and everything else comes with it. Interesting. So we don't think about, oh, one milligram of 
hydromorphone is equivalent to however many milligrams, seven or so milligrams of mor morphine. And so we'll give either four milligrams of morphine or one milligram of Dilaudid. It's interesting because there is so much of that in medicine where we say, well, I'm comfortable with this drug. And so this is what I do. This is what I've always done. And yet there's always new research and new training. So maybe now we need to get comfortable with ketamine for pain or nebulized ketamine or all these other options. So you've mentioned a few important points so far that first of all, it's difficult to assess pain in patients who have cognitive impairment. We have to rely more on other cues, some nonverbal cues or um, grimacing or vital sign changes or other ways. And then also our fear of opioids, fear of potentially overdosing patients. Now, this is a, a legitimate concern. And we've talked on other podcast episodes about the risks of medication interactions or the higher risk of side effects in older patients. So there's some validity to that. So how do we approach that issue of the risk of medication complications or over accidental overdosing? Beautiful question. You know, I'll make it simple and then we can elaborate. It's, it comes to three points. Know the pain chain, know, know the patient, know the drug, and know the drug-drug interactions. And one of the biggest challenges that I have noticed, and it's not only applicable to geriatric patients, which is specifically to this subgroup of patients, it technically covers the entire spectrum of OG patients, young, young children and, and geriatrics, that we don't really honor this drug patient, drug disease, and drug-drug interactions, right? And the best thing to do is start from the basics, engage patients and most of their caregivers into shared decision-making. Tell them what you're gonna give them. Tell them what the alternatives. Most importantly, tell them the dose, the route, the frequencies, and tell them what to expect. What are the immediate sort of acute phase adverse effect and what are the potential long-term effect should they leave emergency department? Get them into participate. Tell them about the natural trajectory of the painful syndrome. Don't just walk away and have a nurse come back and give him four or six milligrams of morphine because of abdominal pain. Have a conversation with them, right? Second, just focus on the patient. Every approach to patient pain should be patient-specific and pain syndrome targeted. And as you know, and you've done so many amazing things, you're telling me there is concept of one pill fits all or one medication fits all just does not exist. Drug disease, you have to be cognizant of the fact what patients are suffering from. Specifically, do you have any contraindication to commonly use class of medication? Other kidneys are okay. Is liver working? They have potential to have hemorrhagic complication if we give them NSAIDs or opioids. And if they do, either switch, adjust those, and make things slightly different. And the last is to essentially should be using titratable analgesic. This is the key that irks me up all the time. Just don't slug him with a single dose and walk away, come back in two hours and ask him, how's your pain? You know, if I were a patient, I'd probably consider punching the doctor in the face because pain has not changed much, but I'm still in pain. So honor the medication we give it. If it's a tradable, titrate. If it's non-titratable, reassess in appropriate time intervals. So that's for now. That's great. I love that. And you know, one of the things I do is I almost never ask people their pain number on a pain scale because you may be a seven and say, no, I don't want anything. Just give me a Tylenol. And somebody else might be a three and say, no, I need something because pain is so subjective. And the way that we score things are so subjective. So I'll typically ask them, do you need something more for pain right now? And sometimes I'm very surprised people who look like they're in a lot of pain will say, no, I really don't want anything. I'm just going to hold off for now. And other people will say, yes, I need something more. So asking them, do you need something more for pain has been much more helpful for me. You raised the question that I want to I want to expand on a little bit, which is the bleeding and toradol. And this is something that I always am curious about. So if somebody has a, a bleeding and NSAIDs, but toradol is what we would typically use. Let's say we're worried somebody may have an intracranial hemorrhage or maybe a dissection. How important is it to avoid that dose of toradol or another NSAID when we're doing the workup? Should we wait and you know, get complete diagnostic certainty with a CAT scan or whatever it may be, and just use other methods? Or how much does that single dose of Toradol really matter? Terrific question. So to answer to your question, I want to start with the case. I vividly remember several years ago, I had a patient who presented to me with undifferentiated headache. It looked okay, appeared okay initially, who received a single dose of Ketorolat. Subsequently, she became rather slightly redundant, and sure enough, she had a brain hemorrhage. 
not because of the keterolic what was given to it, but subsequent cats can actually show somewhere slight worsening of it. So the way I approach to it, the history of, let's say, GI hemorrhage, history of blood blood dyscrisis, thrombocytopenias obviously should make you more cautious in what kinds of the fact that what are you using and how are you using. If someone presented with acute hemorrhagic complication, you know, they have head bleed, they're dissecting, they have something else that will be actually detrimental to it, I'd probably hold on. Even if we consider utilizing analgesic dose of NSAIDs, I would not be considered using this medication. What other general principles can we apply for older patients? So you mentioned that know the drug, know the patient, know the disease. What other things should we consider for this patient population? Same thing. So first thing I would probably say, listen to the patient if you can, and more importantly, pay attention to their caregivers or beloved ones, because these are the people who can give you terrific amount of clues and actually an idea of what's happening to them. You brought up amazing point to follow verbal cues, behavioral cues, grimacing and such. Nobody knows this patient better than their caregivers. Ask them, do they look the same? Are they based to the, back to the baseline? Or there's something they don't seem to be doing, they're doing differently. And you can get a crucial information to it. We talk about the drug to the patient, drug, drug interactions and drug, drug interactions. That's a big on my list. Why? You've had several podcasts and I was very happy to hear that you clearly stated that everybody seems to be so paranoid about acetaminophen. They give acetaminophen to every single elderly patient, no matter what they have, despite the fact that it's modest at most analgesic efficacy and it's not really good analgesic. But people tend to forget that combination of acetaminophen and coumadin. Now it's different, but 10 years ago, everyone was in coumadin with AFib. And I had patient coming back to me absolutely unresponsive because they have massive hemorrhage with INR through the roof. So drug-drug interactions are very, very important. Two that I want to bring up to everybody's attention is I call them lethal dyad and lethal triad. Not only applicable to geriatric, but especially geriatrics. So combination of opioids and gabapentin in combination of opioids, gabapentin, and benzodiazepines. In my book, it's a big no-no. People die from this type of drug-drug uh, interactions or cocktails, I should say. Interesting. So that opioid and gabapentin, is that mostly due to the combination of sedative effects or is there something else going on there? What's interestingly you bring it up is that initial jolt is, was found that gabapentin can serve as potentiator of the euphorogenic property of mm. opioids, but subsequently to it, it becomes very primary respiratory depressant. So frankly, data that utilizing or evaluating combination of opioids and gabapentin demonstrated that patients or people taking this drug together between three to four times higher rates of becoming respiratory depressed and require reversal or frankly intubation or even dying than they would have been taking opioids alone. So in my book, it's a big nano combination. So gabapentin became very unpleasant drug in the market over the past two or three years. Interesting. And there's so many people on it for their peripheral neuropathy or other sorts of pain syndromes. But if they're on gabapentin, then adding on an opioid could be a lethal dyad because of the potentiation of the opioid effects and respiratory depression. And then definitely, you know, GEMCAST listeners have heard me say a million times to be careful of benzos in older patients, but the opioid gabapentin benzo combo sounds like a terrible, terrible triad cocktail. <laughs> totally agree. Well, let's work through a few cases and, you know, kind of bring it down to what we might see in our ER shifts tomorrow. Let's see, we have a patient come in with some mild pain. Maybe they had an ankle sprain or a fall, but nothing's fractured. And we're thinking, okay, how can we safely manage their pain effectively? How would you approach that mild pain patient? I love it. So the uh, common rules like we used to no, I've been taught in medical school residency, you know, ice, rest, elevation, it's obviously taking place, you know. Uh, thermotherapy is when the cryotherapy in the beginning, then thermotherapy afterwards, uh, elevation does work. Immobilization becomes tricky and tricky. And as you know, right, you have elderly patient who may have inherited or geriatrically related a joint or muscle uh, fragility. They have arthritis, they're not ambulating the way they wanted to, and God forbid they have an ankle sprain. Putting them in a spleen or cast, if it's a severe sprain, will jeopardize the well-being at a much greater extent. And then give them crutches, it's a setup for disaster. They're just going to fall and then we're going to have a whole host of other injuries. So even though I'm big on immobilization, we just need to be very specific and kind of very cognizant of the fact, tailor this immobilization to a patient. Maybe there's an air cast, maybe there's a uniboot, maybe there's a just hard sole shoe, something that may not totally get them off out of their functional status so they can back to their routines, which is very, very important. Now, pharmacologically wise, mild pain, 
either acetaminophen or ibuprofen. I used to be, and you probably remember, I've been preaching and screaming at the top of my lungs that combine these two medications, they work so much better together than alone. Well, I was wrong. And the good thing is that we do research and we do data. Numerous recent clinical trials clearly stated that there is no reason to combine these two medications. Addition of acetaminophen to ibuprofen does not result in addition analgesia. And again, despite the fact that we believe acetaminophen is a fairly benign medication, it may not be so. So either choose one, but if you do choose NSAIDs, be very cognizant of the fact it should be given the lowest effective dose. And that's what analgesic ceiling concept comes into the place. And I traditionally do not use more than three to four days of systemic analgesic or NSAIDs. There are relative contraindication to systemic NSAIDs, topical NSAIDs. I believe firmly that we as ED clinicians underutilizing this type of analgesia as topical NSAIDs. Yes, topical. I know a lot of my orthopedic colleagues love this, the Voltaren gel that you can rub on the, the knee. Does that work for things like ankle sprains or that kind of pain? These are by far the best medication in the market. Hmm. And furthermore, I can tell you, because I've done some research and I did a couple of things, I looked specifically into it. A concentration of the very NSAID, let's say the clofenac, in tendon, cartilage, even in the muscle, after topical administration, an average three to 600 times higher than, than the concentration of the same medication if you choose to give it systemically. In other words, wow. if you rub it in, you can actually have a much better localized effect rather than give somebody a pill, which has host of systemic effect and you have more adverse effect than actual analgesia. So consider this. Wow, that is 100% practice changing because I have never prescribed a topical uh, NSAID from the ED, but I, I'm always nervous about prescribing high dose oral NSAIDs, or like you said, you don't wanna do it for more than three days because of the risk of renal uh, acute kidney injury or interaction with other medications. So I love that idea of prescribing a topical analgesic for, uh, for mild joint pain. What about back pain? How is the diclofenac gel or Voltaren gel for back pain? Acute back pain due to sprain, strain, you know, you bend a little, you shovel the snow, not necessarily a geriatric patient, but let's <laughs> say it's a trivial muscle sprain, strain, you know, it just, you got a little stiffness. It's number one, it's go one drug in my armamentarium. And I've done it to myself as well. And I'm, I cannot be happier. And the good thing is to remind everyone that at least two, three years ago, the clefinite was essentially unaffordable. Now mm. it's OTC, it's over the counter. And frankly, I'm not advertising anything, but let's say if you a Costco shoppers, you can get three tubes under $30 and that's enough for your family, for your friends and probably entire town. The fact <laughs> is it's, it's, it's somewhat more affordable right now. But the fact is that widely acceptable, rest of the world has been using it ages and decades. And I'm so happy we have this tool that we can, truly, truly help our geriatric patient when it comes to any type of relatively mild or mild, moderate degree of musculoskeletal pathology. I love that. And I think we do tend to have a bias towards oral medications. We think, oh, you've got a problem. Let's give you a pill to fix that problem. That's just the general uh, thought process out there. Whereas actually this topical agent gets into the tissues and tendons better and has fewer systemic side effects. So I love that. What other topical agents are you using? So I know everybody's, no matter what I look right now is, and partially I started myself to it, everybody's revved up about this topical lidocaine. So don't get me wrong, lidocaine 4% patch, which is, works as good as lidocaine 5% patch. The difference in price is 120 times, 4% is cheaper, which is, that's what we should be using. You know, the data is there to support its use for, uh, pain with neuropathic component to it. You have acute herpetic neuralgia. You can cut a little piece input on intact skin next to the rash and they can properly feel some relief. Patients have a topical shooting pains in joints and the muscles and everything else, even sort of sciatica type of thing. We can probably accustom to slap this lidocaine patch on the lower back. In acute settings, data is very inconclusive. Cochrane systematic review really didn't advise much that the data is not quite there yet. Even though habitual acids at times use lidocaine patches for patients with acute musculoskeletal pain, specifically, if let's say there's some mega contraindication to topical NSAIDs, but I've yet to find somebody who would have contraindication to topical NSAIDs. If you do use lidocaine, do I prefer to combine with menthol or comfort? It gives additional you know, warmth and additional analgesic effect to it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of lidocaine patches. Although like you said, I don't know how great the data is for it. 
But what is so funny is the lidocaine, like you mentioned, 4% patch is available over the counter. It's about $5 at Target. And the 5% patch is, I don't know, $130 and requires prior authorization from an insurance company, which of course we can never get through the ED. So it's kind of a weird conundrum, uh, idiosyncrasy of our healthcare system. But I like it for acute back pain or sometimes even kind of musculoskeletal rib pain. I find I found that helpful there. So we have a good plan for mild pain. We can use our topicals, our uh, topical NSAIDs. We can use parenteral NSAIDs as long as there's no combination and we're not using it for too long. Combination of acetaminophen and NSAIDs, not additionally helpful compared to just straight NSAIDs. But being wary of the NSAID analgesic ceiling, so using the lowest dose that we that we can get away with. Now let's think about a patient with moderate pain. Maybe this is moderate, let's say moderate musculoskeletal pain, maybe a wrist fracture or moderate abdominal pain or kidney stone type of pain. How would you approach that patient? So moderate pain, if you know, usual approaches, if they can take oral medication and you truly believe it's moderate pain, uh, you probably okay to start with again, NSAIDs, systemic NSAIDs, and I might go one guy's ibuprofen. Um, I just love ibuprofen, you know, not person, you probably as alternative, but I just stick to ibuprofen and then opioids. When it comes to oral opioids, I just want to make one clear distinction because so many articles, so many podcasts, so many, pretty much everything has been written about opioids focusing on limiting number of pills and limiting number of days we prescribe this medication. But people tend to forget the qualitative approach to opioids, specifically whether or not this particular opioid has a great euphorogenic potential. And you'd be surprised, even if we talk about elderly people, we think elderly people, 75, 80 years old, are they gonna get high? They're gonna get affected? Yes, they can get high and they can get affected to it. So if you ought to choose an opioid, obviously follow the balance between analgesic efficacy you can factor adverse effect, but more importantly in my book is potential to cause euphoria. So from that perspective, start with oral NSAIDs if you can, or combine NSAIDs with oral opioids. And for that reason, I would strongly suggest to use morphine sulfate immediate release tablet or a liquid. And if you press for a variety of reasons, you can use actually suppository. So morphine sulfate immediate release, my drug of choice when it comes to opioids, in managing moderate pain that requires opioids. So what's the thinking in terms of the oral morphine versus oxycodone versus Norco com, uh, hydrocodone? Why is the oral morphine better? I'm putting balance with respect to analgesic efficacy and potential to cause euphoria. From analgesic perspectives, if we honor this analgesic conversion, if I properly dose morphine sulfate immediate release, oxycodone and hydrocodone, there isn't a difference in analgesic efficacy. They all work the same. Problem is when it comes to euphorogenic potential, oxycodone is about 1.5 times more potent than morphine, but close to six plus times more euphorogenic than morphine. Hydrocodone, similar analgesic efficacy and slightly more euphorogenic property because hydrocodone is a prodrug and active metabolite is hydromorphone, which we already covered, that's severely euphorogenic. So, but we tend not to pay attention to this, right? We're so accustomed to get somebody Norcos, get somebody oxycodone, frankly, Percocet, which is another thing we need to talk about, combination versus solo agent. But the fact is, if we factor this euphorogenic potential to it, we'll be much more successful. Mm. You don't get this high, you don't get this Pathological desire, obviously, later on pathological desire to use the same medication, but not for medicinal purposes, for self-gratifying to get to this euphorogenic level that you've had before. And that creates a whole host of tolerance and dependence and development of opiate use disorder. So let's say for moderate pain, you're sending someone home. What would be in an opioid naive patient? What would be your typical go-to dose for the oral morphine? Morphine salpate immediate release, 7.5 milligram, max 10. We've actually done studies in my shop that we compare morphine sulfate immediate release to uh, oxycodone and acetaminophen. We've used 15 milligram and we found that people, opioid naive patients, becoming very dysphoric. Too much of a dose. So 7.5 to start with, 10 max. Why is 10? Because oral morphine sulfate immediate release comes as a 5 milligram and 5 milliliters uh, liquid. So you could do, I'm oh, sorry, 10 milligram and 5 ml. And you do this every six to eight hours. I'm a big proponent of doing fixed dosing and I probably do six to eight hours. Not every four hours. I would do six, the minimum. And for the breakthrough, you can supplement them in between. 
You can probably add additional insets. You can do topical. As we talked about it, you can do systemic. Acetaminophen probably is not going to be good anymore because, you know, again, it's a modest, at most, analgesic efficacy, but that my regimen. And we give it two to three days worth of pills. My original habit is two pills. I mean, two days worth of pills. We're talking about nine to 12 pills, depending on the mm-hmm. frequencies. And you combine with non-pharmacological treatment, immobilization, a little bit PT, a little something. And then you can plus minus NSAIDs. Excellent. So we've got a good plan for mild and moderate pain. Now let's talk about the severe pain. Often this will be the abdominal pain that's undifferentiated. We're working it up. We're getting labs. We're getting a CT scan, but the patient is clearly in pain. What would be your go-tos here? So in perfect world, if I have this beautiful uh, septa, octa, nanogenarian, let's just say not young adults, we're talking about actual geriatric patients, but they're relatively healthy, right? They have no underlying kidney or liver issues and have no major comorbidities, not suffering from sleep apnea, stage four COPD use. I would start with opioids and morphine sulfate is drug of choice. Everybody revved up about this weight-based dose of morphine 0.1 makes per kilo, it's too much. For elderly people, nobody should be slugged with this eight or 10 milligrams as a single push. That's where you get into the trouble. Fixed dosing, you know, four to six, at some pips, it's probably still too much. I usually quote my favorite study by Virginia Wolf she done in, in France. Patients were randomized if they were less weight-based. They were given either two milligrams of morphine or three milligrams of morphine every five minutes until pain is optimized. Imagine that, but titration was happening every five minutes. We cannot do this in our RDs, right? You know that I know it. There's no way I can be at the bedside for 20 minutes and titrate opioids like this. But the fact is, you can start with four. Frankly, if it's a 90-year-old with some, you can start with two, but don't come back in half an hour. Come back in five or 10 minutes and reassess. You can easily get them to six or eight by giving small increments. And that's why my biggest uh, pit peeve has been always with elderly people. Just don't give them the large initial dose and then you have to call phenolox and an airway and God knows what else. Start a little slower but go more frequently. And that's the uh, advice too. Yeah. So one of the the taglines for geriatric dosing is always start low and go slow, but you have to then reassess and titrate frequently. So you can't just start low, go slow, and then check out and leave them there for several hours with their hip fracture, start low, go slow, but then reassess in five, 10 minutes. I like that. Totally. I would change start slow, but be cognizant of the fact how you need to trade. I wouldn't say start slow and go fast, titrate accordingly but this is the key to success. And if we're not, even not doing a good job, I mentioned to you earlier, titration, lack, uh, lack of titration, desire to be better. So we've talked about opioids and their pros, cons, and dosing. What about some alternative medications to opioids? What else are you using for different indications in the ED? So we start with opioids. Let's say they do not work or we cannot give an opioids because there's a bunch of contraindications. And as you brought it up, I'm, I'm a big ketamine lover and I would probably stick to ketamine. Good thing is, recent data clearly state that 0.15 makes per kilo works just as good as 0.3, which sets a great field of analgesic advantage to geriatric patients who cannot tolerate or have contraindications to opioids. So you do 0.15 makes per kilo uh, over 20 to 30 minutes as a slow infusion. And if you desire to do so, you may put them on a continuous drip at I'd say five to 10 megs per hour, or you can do 0.15 milligram per kilogram per hour. You complete a diagnostic workup and they'll be okay. You obviously need to do pre-ketamine coaching, tell them what to expect. They still may have a little uh, feeling unreal to the sort of psychoperceptual adverse effect, but ketamine has been very good friend of mine and I've been very successful in it. Uh, Ultrasound guided neuroblocks. No matter where you look, everybody is stating musculoskeletal injury, broken bones, ultrasound guided neuroblock. But the challenge is, what if you can get them on time? What if they're so contracted? What if their anatomy is geriatrically impaired that you can't even position them for this particular block? And my favorite part is, fine, you block them in the ED, but there's still something you need to send them home with because block doesn't last forever, right? If you can have a chance to do the block, absolutely. Absolutely, it's fantastic, specifically for musculoskeletal problem. Uh, hip fractures, femur fractures, shoulder dislocations, humerus fractures, you name it. Any type of fracture that I'm unable to block, go ahead and do it. But you need to be cognizant of the fact that it may not be readily available. IV lidocaine, challenging for elderly. Lots of uh, contraindication, relative and absolute. Very narrow therapeutic index, but patient with neuropathic component to it may benefit greatly. And what I've been using occasionally, uh, lidocaine uh, continuous infusion. And you start slowly, you start them at 100 milligram over half an hour to 40 minutes, make sure there's no problems. And then you can actually adjust the dose accordingly. 
Earlier data that lidocaine works so well for patients with renal colic has never been replicated outside of Iran. And we did our own study in my shop where we compare lidocaine to ketorolac, to lidocaine-ketorolac combination for renal colic patients and lidocaine failed miserably. So this medication can be used on a case-by-case basis, but I would not push as a first-line, even second-line defense. Oh no, that's terrible news. I was so excited by all the, the lidocaine data that was coming out a few years ago. And I started using it for especially intractable uh, renal colic pain, more in younger patients, but, or patients who, for example, are on Suboxone or have a history of opioid abuse, and we want to try to avoid opioids. And so lidocaine was kind of my go-to for pain or ketamine for renal colic pain in younger patients. So that is unfortunate that the studies have not borne out. It's okay. Look, as you pointed out, young, healthy patients, as if everything fails, you know, my go one is NSAIDs, either alone or in combination with opioids. Let's say NSAIDs opioids fail. It's a big seven millimeters, you know, UPJ stone, staggering calculi, and there's massive hydronephrosis. Sure, you can, on case by case basis, you can use lidocaine. But I'm just saying there isn't a data that's supporting widespread use. So just don't off the bat use lidocaine for patients with renal colic. It's just not. Properly, right. So, still go to our opioid and said, mm-hmm. um, which is typically what I do. And then, if somebody has either a contraindication to the opioids or you've done doses and doses and doses of opioids and they're still having severe pain, occasionally the lidocaine is really a lifesaver in those situations. Totally agree with you. It just needs to be finesse, needs to be uh, entertained when it comes to geriatric patient with renal colic because, again, yes. with especially cardiac problem, arrhythmia, history of seizures, uh, bad coronary artery disease greater than 60, 70% stenosis, you just kind of need to be careful with lidocaine. It's, it's not a benign drug. Agree. That's more what I go to in my 40 year old patients. Now, exactly. what about ketamine in older patients? I know you said it's, it's safe and effective. Do we need to worry about if they have underlying cardiac disease or history of AFib or any other dysrhythmias for ketamine? So the only contraindication to ketamine is uh, willingness uh, uh, not wanting to take this medication or a true allergy, which I've yet to find someone. Every notion and every sort of uh, concern that you just voiced out are not part of the sub-dissociative ketamine analgesia. I've given ketamine to thousands upon thousands of patients over 20 years of my career, and I've yet to find someone who had any aberrations of vital signs towards elevated heart rate, elevated blood pressure. I'm specifically talking on analgesic dose of ketamine. When we go to you know dissociative dose for personal sedation analgesia and intubation dose, induction dose, that's different. We're talking about a 10th of a dose we're accustomed to use. And now again, we have a lower dosing threshold and we have a different ways of giving ketamine. So I would not much worry about this. So hypertension, tachycardia are still related to pain, should not be deterrent agent when it comes, deterrent factor when it comes to ketamine analgesia. That's great news. Now, I know you said you, you recently did finish some research on nebulized ketamine. Tell us about how we might use that for patients. Yes, we did. Thanks for bringing this up. So, you know, I'm always pushing up when it comes to ketamine. And the fact is it's still not as widely used as I want it to be besides lack of comfort, semi-comfort, or frankly, some regulatory constraints because some hospitals and some departments may not be allowed to use ketamine outside of anesthesia, operating room, and what have you. But the fact is to have ketamine available in non-invasive mode that can be easily established, let's say from the triage, can be titratable, and essentially devoid of major systemic effect that IV ketamine would have entailed, it opened up a great possibility to study it. And we did. We've randomized uh, young patients, adult patients, 18 to 65. We did not include geriatric patients. That's next thing happening to receive either 0.75 mg per kilo, one or 1.5. We've used Nifty nebulizer. We're not, we didn't use traditional one. We used, it's called breath actuated nebulizer. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Right, it looks like an enclosed canister. There's a dual mode of action. A, you can use as a blow-by when vapors go in ambient air and everybody gets fumigated, or there's a button you switch and it becomes nebulized PCA. Patient takes a breath, medication gets released. Nothing gets released in ambient air. Best part, overdose is virtually prevented because if you, God forbid, become a little high or loopy on ketamine, you won't be able to trigger the breath. You won't be able to trigger the nebulizer and nothing gets released. So this is what we use for this particular study. Make a story short, at 30 minutes, at 60, 120, there were no difference between three doses of nebulized ketamine. But average change in pain score, ready? Tell 44%. Us. 44% wow. from the baseline. 44% from the baseline. That's huge. So imagine you're busy. You're typical, I don't know, Monday afternoon, it's a rush hour. You have this 
beautiful, adorable older lady who tripped and fell, and now she has a obviously deformed leg. And you kind of foresee it is going to take two hours before I get my ultrasound ready. It's going to take another hour before somebody gets to see her. And let's say you're a pet doc. So that's the opportunity to order this medication from the get-go. And she's got perfectly with it. She's got all her faculties. She's very cognizant. She understands what's happening. She's able to hold a nebulizer. And this is a way to do it. You can titrate. You give one dose, second dose, third dose until she says enough is enough. I'm so ketamine already. Or pain becomes intolerably painful. Then you need to switch to different medication. So that's what I see. Nebulized ketamine comes into the play. A triage, initial analgesic utilization. I love that. So now we have a good plan for our mild, moderate, severe. And what I love about whenever I talk with you is I feel like I'm expanding my repertoire because, you know, it's not often we approach pain as opioids are a one size fits all. And as you said, it's not. The dosing is not one size fits all. And we can be much more nuanced and much more thoughtful about it if we have more drugs in our armamentarium or more modes of administration, where, whether it's topical or nebulized versus IV versus oral. Are there other cautions? I know you talked about the, the deadly dyad and triad. What other cautions or things should we look at in the patient's medications before we start something or before we prescribe a new medication? So my, uh, in addition to everything I mentioned to you, I'm very uh, particular about whether a patient may have any degree of liver or specific renal insufficiencies. We tend to neglect this, but as you know, we've spoken in the past, uh, majority of opioids with exception of fentanyl are highly nephrotoxic. And if we forget this, things can become very, very bad. And I'll give a quick example. 75-year-old gentleman comes into the emergency room after fall, has a broken hip, gets four milligram of morphine, gets another four milligram of morphine, total of 10 in a span of, let's say, two hours. Couldn't get a block, gets admitted to uh, ward, orthopedic surgery, what have you. Four hours into the ward, during the rounds, he was found not breathing. Respiratory arrest, tried to bring him back, couldn't. And... Everybody kind of wanted to what's happening. What's, and when they look at it, his baseline creatinine was 1.8. And that particular visit, it was twice as mm. large. It was close to three. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not encouraging everybody to hold opioids until you get creatinine. But the fact is get in the habit maybe to check the prior visits, records, or talk to the patients. Same with the hepatic insufficiency, right? Only to the fact just you need, you can still use the medication. Just lower the dose, space the intervals. If a normal patient with normal renal function, you can do four milligram every 30 minutes to an hour. With patient with renal sufficiency, do four milligram every four to six hours. And you can still get the same effect. So that's one thing I would strongly advise people to under patient comorbidity with respect to renal and hepatic insufficiency. Yeah, that's so important because that's a huge difference every 30 to 60 minutes versus every four to six hours. And, you know, I think about this in my end-stage renal disease or dialysis patients too, that when you give that that opioid, it's just going to hang around for a long, long time because they're not excreting it. They're not um, clearing it in their system. So they may need one dose and then be fine for a long time. Another thing is, which we tend to not to talk much except you, because you've always been incredible, is discharge planning. You know, to give somebody a few days of opioids, it's, it's a partial of the problem. But the fact is, do they live alone? Can they store this medication safely and effectively? Do they understand the frequency to it? Do they have alike a pills at home that they can mistook for this? And you understand what I'm saying, right? There's a whole host additional uh, safety barrier that we need, safety layers that we need to entertain before we discharge patients home. Simply even an acetaminophen, an NSAID, any type of medication you add to patient list already, you kind of need to be smart about this, specifically when it comes to opioids. Safe storage and disposal, ability to take the medication, not to confuse, not to have family member who can get into this bathroom cabinet, steal all the medication and have and other things happen. Yeah, it happens. You know, statistically speaking, right? 40% of patients who ever misuse opioids took him from their relatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and it's, we're talking about uh, young adults and teenagers in the household with elderly people. So that's another thing. It's very, very important to me. Ensure safe discharge planning that they actually can comply with this medication. The other thing that I do, and I'm, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir, is um, 
whenever I'm prescribing an opioid to an older patient, I also prescribe cholase-senna combination, the pericholase, because you only have to manually disimpact one or two people who have been sent home. You know, maybe they saw an outside hospital or urgent care and got prescribed an opioid and then come in just so miserable with horrible impaction. And, and then you will never forget to always prescribe that cholase-senna combo when you're sending somebody home. It's a beautiful point. I'm so happy you brought this up. You know, I wish I would have every single EMRs would have this big pop-up screen. <laughs> yes. Anytime you order, did you order bowel regimen for this patient? And if you're not, you just cannot prescribe it. I would just push it to the extreme. You're absolutely correct. Bowel regimen is very, very important. Yes, so important. Don't let one problem then beget another problem. No, do not. Any other considerations when you're thinking specifically about new drugs that you might be prescribing someone? New drugs, I would probably follow the same principle. You start slow and you go low. You find the lowest effect of those you believe will benefit this patient. And what you do is you give it for two or three days with a very good discharge instruction. Something may not work. Something happens. Please either refer to us, call us, or make sure you can see your primary care physician when it comes to new drugs. Because we, we may not know every single drug-drug interactions and how this patient behaves. But caution should be on the dosing interval, and most importantly, duration of the treatment. And I'm curious, are you prescribing gabapentin for many things or only for post-herpetic neuralgia? Are there any other things that you're prescribing gabapentin for from the ED? So I stopped personally prescribing gabapentin almost three years ago. I told you for the fact that it found to be highly misused and abused and as a part of the lethal diet and lethal triad. And least thing you want, again, to give an elderly person with lots of comorbidities, shaky balances, a medication to make him even more loopier, more sleepier, and that set him up for potential disaster. Issue with gabapentin is we in the ED, we may not quite understand the titration mechanism of it. This medication, you know, we gave 300 milligrams a single dose, okay, go home. It doesn't really work this way, right? You need to sit and you need to talk to the patient. And most importantly, if the patient has a primary care physician knowledge with this medication, perfect. But if they don't, you know, tell them take 300 milligrams once a day or 103 times a day for two days, then go uh, 200 once a day and then uh, another 200 at night. Titrate every other day until you reach this particular effect. It's challenging. It's challenging for young. It's even more challenging for elderly. But if I need to choose an indication, I'll probably stick to neuro neuropathies and neurologies and nothing else. I would not use gabapentin for any type of acute mm. pain. It's just not working. What about the patient who comes in with acute musculoskeletal back pain, no red flags, or maybe you even did an MRI, there's nothing severe, it's acute back strain. The trouble is a lot of the muscle relaxants that are often prescribed also have medication complications or interactions. So what's your go-to for that? I am so happy you brought this up. I'm going to quote one of my mentors. His name is Dr. James Ducharme from Canada, who's been very, very fantastic when it comes to pain management. I vividly remember a conversation we have with him and he, he has issue with the muscle relaxant and he flat out said, if you want to give muscle relaxant, unless it's becaronium, racaronium, or uh, saxonholin, we should not be having a conversation. And reality <laughs> wow. is, yeah, that's how, it, and that's how actually I've, I've interpreted this and I've been swaying and pursuing my residents and my fellow colleagues, stop prescribing so-called muscle relaxant. A, they're not relaxant. Antispasmodic agent, we only have one, baclofen for skeletal muscle spasticity due to spinal cord injury, sure. But my amazing fellow colleague, Dr. Ben Friedman out of Montefiore in New York, published 13 clinical trials where he has compared naproxen or ibuprofen to every single muscle relaxant known to humans. Methacarbamol, uh, uh, flexoril, arfenidine, terfenidine, any type of commonly used muscle relaxant we use. And guess what? No change in pain no change in functional activity restoration. And he basically clearly stated, if you ought to use it, just don't use it. So my go-to is no muscle relaxant. Wow. Don't and is it. that true in younger patients also? And all just across the board? I would assume so. Problem is uh, our fellow colleagues might have anecdotal experiences or clinical practice. They have successes in giving this type of medication mm -hmm. or some patients whereby I had a screwed up neck, a K-tarticolis, I was giving benzodiazepines. I felt so much better. Sure. Very, very small instances it might, but if you do general spiel, and if I want to convey the message through your uh, podcast today, I would strongly encourage ED clinicians not to use any type of muscle relaxant unless it's succinylcholine 
<laughs> which uh just to be clear please don't send your patients home with rocuronium or rocuronium <laughs> so then just sticking to those topical NSAIDs lidocaine patch maybe um or acetaminophen uh systemic topical NSAIDs plus minus acetaminophen and um uh, great deal of PTOT if you can and NDD we can do trigger point injection TPIs that's been very beneficial for localized muscle mm. spasm, for localized muscle ache that you can locate this, go ahead and do it. Yeah. I love the trigger point injections. I've started doing those in the last five years when somebody comes in and you can feel in their back, there's that little knot. Now it's not good. Or at least uh, my presumption is it's not good when they're kind of like, oh, it hurts in my entire back. Well, then where am I going to inject the trigger? But when you can feel that one spot often under the scapula, this tends to be the, where it shows up the most for me. And, uh, and then you just inject the, the lidocaine in there and who knows, uh, maybe, you know, I have heard some studies that show it's, it's less the lidocaine and more the, the needling that does it. But, um, but I've definitely had some success with that. And that's great. Cause then you don't have to prescribe something parenteral. Totally. You know, another thing that we do, I think we do not just For such a good job is yeah, totally agree with you is to talk to patient about expectations and mm. natural trajectory of the back pain. As you know, we've covered this in the past and you've done it yourself. 90% of patients will get nearly complete pain relief in two weeks after non-severely uh, damaged back. I'm talking about someone who has a back sprain, strain, the shovel, the bent and such. 90% will have complete recovery in less than two weeks without any medication. You know, everybody coping with this magic pill and everything, but reality is topical cream, walk through it, some physical exercise if you want to, either PTOT, swimming, whatever, that in, in sort of, reinforces your core muscles, you'll be just fine. And again, no muscle relaxant, please. <laughs> I love that. That's another great takeaway. All right. So final topic, let's say we have a patient who needs a, a painful procedure done, maybe a reduction or, you know, they, their hip is out or their shoulders out or some sort of painful procedure, maybe an esophageal food bolus, et cetera. How can we safely do procedural sedation in these patients? Well, it's a whole host of a topic in itself. Yeah, but uh, most important thing is, again, it's a right patient, it's a right procedure, and it's a right drug. And I'm going to add seven Ps, and seven Ps stands for preparation, 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 preparation. As you know, nothing's more important than the right preparation. You know, poorly executed preparation, uh, it's set up for disaster, and you're going to have really, really bad outcomes when it comes to uh, presidial sedation and analgesia. So look, when it comes to... Uh, Medications, I'm a big fan of ketamine and propofol, given separately. I'm not a big proponent of ketofol. I found this to be somewhat misleading, and there's a great deal of uh, debates whether or not it's good or not good. But let's just stick to ketamine by itself and propofol. The only difference between young adults, adults are very sensitive to any type of medication, especially with propofol. So suggestion is that typically we can slug young patient with a 1 to 1.5 mg per kilo of ketamine, just technically put him out and do what we need to do. With elderly, I would be a little more cognizant of the fact that I would probably start slower. And I usually use this expression, you put them out with, you induce them with ketamine or you put them out with ketamine. And for the smooth sailing, you add propofol to it. But typical um, <clears throat> PSA for me is, I start with propofol, 10 to 20 milligram of intravenous propofol to start with, explain what's going to happen, take him off. And then I do 0.5 to 0.75 of ketamine. And I've stopped with ketamine, then just do a little bit more of propofol. The issue is 0.5 to 0.75 is partially dissociative dose, which in the young people tend to put them into this nightmarish state and they're not really happy. Then you just need to give them full dissociative dose and put them really out. It's awful sensation. With elderly, if you smooth them with propofol before, you can properly get away with a lower dose of ketamine. But these are my two drugs. I don't believe fentanyl midazolam combination should be used in elderly people, especially in situation when they waited too long and have given them opioids beforehand. Now I have a double hit with opioids and benzos. And as you mentioned earlier, you've been pondering to listeners over and over and over again that these are not such a good combinations. And everything comes to it, to answer the action, you need to find rapid agent, relatively safe and, really, and fairly effective. Can, a propofol is the shortest one. And has a little hyperventilation, a little cardiac abnormalities, but at the dosing, you should probably be okay. That's why ketamine comes into the play. 
I like that. So start with 20 to 30 milligrams of propofol and then the 0.5 to 0.75 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, and then just little propofol boluses as you go. So say the procedure is taking a little bit longer or the joint popped out again, they need to pop it back in. You would just do additional pushes of 20 to 30 of propofol if needed. Yes. If, if the procedure takes longer, prosthetic hip, you cannot really get in everything. You can always add a little bit more of ketamine. Mm. Traditional teaching is, you know, shortest procedure, you can maybe stick to propofol alone. We talk about cardioversion, right? A small joint relocation. Then you may even need a ketamine. Longer procedure, if you believe it's a habitual shoulder dislocation or it's been out for long or it's a hip, I would use propofol ketamine. And starting dose is, as I described to you, you can start with a 10 to 50 milligram of propofol, but you just need to finesse around the patient. And that's why there's no right type of uh, dosing regimen to it. I just wanted to reinforce that large initial upfront loading with propofol, let's say 100 milligram propofol, 100 milligram mm. ketamine, it's not good for elderly people. They're very, very sensitive. Start slower and see what happens. You can always give more. Yes, I like that. Well, Sergey, this has been phenomenal. Some of the big take-home points for me are <laughs> no muscle relaxants, <laughs> no muscle relaxants for you, for anyone really, because it just doesn't help and there's side effects. Instead, using things like NSAIDs, topical agents, et cetera. And then in general principles, know the drug, know the patient, know the procedure, know the interactions and preparation, 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 and really getting as much of a good medical history as you can, knowing the patient's creatinine or looking back at it and um, drug dosing the drugs accordingly. And then the combination of NSAIDs and acetaminophen, no additional benefit versus just NSAIDs on their own. And then always starting low, going slow, but then titrating rapidly, titrating more quickly than just every, you know, four to six hours. Topical NSAIDs are the bomb and better, in fact, for treatment than systemic oral NSAIDs and fewer side effects. And then the other one is the no, no gabapentin, avoiding gabapentin in this population because of a lot of the different complications or potential for abuse that you've mentioned. Yeah. Any, and one more, just I'm going to yes. add to it. Morphine please. sulfate immediate release as an opioid of choice, please. No oxycodone, no hydro, uh, no oxycodone, no tramadol, no codeine, no hydromorphone. If morphine sulfate immediate release for some reason is contraindicated or patient may feel more nauseous and they tell you in the past they had a bad experience with morphine, you can probably consider giving hydrocodone combination, hydrocodone acetaminophen. But again, combination because of the fact that you give them acetaminophen, then you need to structure your dosing regimen properly. Unfortunately, hydrocodone doesn't come alone. So it's uh, Norco, Vicodin, this type of combination. But MSIR is your friend. I love that. Practice changing. Prescribing morphine, immediate release instead of oxycodone for Yay. older patients. Well, thank you so much, Sergey. This has been so much fun and I've learned a lot and I, I'm sure our listeners have too. And hopefully we'll change how they manage pain in older adults and also feel more comfortable, have a bigger repertoire, have more agents to bring to bear for patients with different types and degrees of pain. Thank you so much for being on Gemcast. Christina, thank you so much for having me. And I cannot thank you enough for all you do for the art of emergency medicine and specifically art of geriatric emergency medicine. Thank you for being a true champion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.